From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 28th. Today, why employers are getting bolder with vaccine mandates, COVID's effect on the opioid crisis, and life after floods in Germany. under consideration right now, but if you're not vaccinated, you're not nearly as smart as I thought you were. The government is moving forward, it appears, on a vaccination mandate for federal workers. That's millions of workers, many of whom probably do have the vaccine already, but a number don't. And that's something that public health experts had wanted the president to do for some time. It's a big population. It sets an example. There might be a trickle-down effect. Dan Diamond covers health policy for The Post. The White House also is supporting a change to masking guidance. It brings us back, essentially, Martine, to where we were a few months ago. The CDC had recommended for quite some time that we wear masks indoors. As people started getting vaccinated, the CDC said there's less evidence for the benefits of masking if you are vaccinated. You can even take your mask off in many places. But now, with the rise of the Delta variant, there is evidence that vaccinated people sometimes can get sick. And even more concerningly, vaccinated people can spread the virus. So this kind of double-barreled approach of first mandating the vaccine in government workers, and second, imposing new protections because of the threat of the variant and the use of masks and hopefully warding it off. And in some ways, this does seem like, I don't know if about face is the right word, but that there was a hope that things were starting to go back to normal. And it's becoming clear that that's not the case, that the Delta variant has really changed the game in a way that even though a significant portion of the population is vaccinated, that that's not going to be enough to actually end the pandemic, at least in the U.S. I think an about face is a pretty accurate term for the feelings this week, Martine. The hope was that pulling the mask and guidance back for vaccinated people, it would be a lure. It would be a carrot for all those unvaccinated Americans to say, oh, I want that too. Instead, it seems like a lot of them interpret it as, well, maybe we don't need masks either. The percentage of people wearing masks has dropped precipitously from about 90% or more earlier this year to about 50% recently. And we know that not all of those people were vaccinated. Just the habit went away because people thought we had beaten the worst part of the pandemic. And similarly, there were lots of soft incentives for people to get vaccinated. The reality that we may need vaccine mandates, not just in the federal government, but there have been other organizations too, local governments, uh, colleges, hospitals, that have been increasingly implementing these requirements. It shows that there is concern, not only that we're doing an about face to earlier this year, but that we really could be backsliding into something very bad, as we saw in India and more recently in the United Kingdom. It's it's a real bummer. And speaking personally, having reported these stories for the past few weeks, it, it's affected my own thinking and plans. I was hoping to go see my brother across the country on a cross-country trip recently. I, I keep putting that off, just given the rise of Delta and wanting to learn a little bit more about how it's spreading before I commit to a big travel plan. 
And I also wonder how much of this is thinking about the the state of the economy and how people like you might start to recalculate your decisions. If we're still going to be traveling and spending money and helping to fuel the economy if there are these new risks. That's an excellent, excellent point. I had spoken to the county health director in Los Angeles last week, Barbara Ferrer, who made the point when they brought back a local mask mandate, they didn't want to shut down businesses again. They said this was the easiest way to keep stores open. Yes, it was a little bit of an inconvenience to remember to wear your mask, but better that than a broad shutdown in the face of the Delta variant. And I think we're seeing that on a national level too. There is real fear about crippling what had been a mostly positive recovery. And the Biden administration is is walking a political fine line here. The president had campaigned on this promise. He was going to get the pandemic under control compared to how President Trump let it often rage out of control. And to the president's credit, there have been very positive signs this year, vaccination rollout, public health messaging that doesn't include touting drugs that don't work or encouraging bleach. I mean, there, this is a world of difference. At the same time, this president, like the last one, is trying to balance the economic reality against the public health reality. If you talk to a public health expert, they're much more alarmed than some of the domestic policy experts who are trying to just keep the American recovery going. So I want to ask more about this vaccine mandate for federal employees and how exactly will that work? Like if a federal worker decides that they don't want to get vaccinated, does that mean that they're going to be fired? The current plan is for President Biden on Thursday to give a broader announcement about where we stand in our fight against the coronavirus. And as part of that, to announce that federal employees will need to get the vaccine or they'll have to go through rigorous, regular testing. This is something that California had announced, New York City had announced for their workers. So it's a very similar plan. The difference in some respects from other mandates we've seen, the government doesn't want to fire people, in part because it's hard to fire government workers, and that could create real morale issues. But the government has signaled that they might put new restrictions on people who aren't vaccinated. Maybe it will be harder to go into certain places or to get access to things. It's still evolving as we talk on Wednesday. There's a chance that this policy could change dramatically. There's a chance President Biden could have second thoughts. But I will say that this White House is much more straightforward than the last. So you're saying the federal government is hoping that they won't have to at least attempt to fire people for not getting vaccinated. But what does happen if somebody says that they refuse? And there are a lot of people who work for the federal government, and I'm sure some of them don't want to get vaccinated. It's an excellent question. I mean, I I can't foresee the future. I can tell you what's happened in the recent past, which is at hospitals where folks refused, they were initially suspended and eventually fired. Now, again, it's going to be a lot harder to fire workers in the government. I also think Biden doesn't want to go there. But it's not just being vaccinated. They also have the option to get regularly tested. If they turn down both, then yes, there may be a way to keep those folks physically separate from others in hopes of protecting people who are still at risk and maybe wanted to get vaccinated but have a medical reason why they needed an exemption. I'm wondering how much of this vaccination mandate is part of an effort to empower other employers to put in similar mandates. There is some aspect of leading from the top. The White House had said 
every time reporters had asked for months. They weren't going to impose a national mandate. They'd even avoided talking about a federal mandate, too. The fact that we are here, Martine, suggests these other tactics haven't worked. Public health officials have asked. They've cajoled. I spoke to the California health secretary, Mark Galley, a few days ago, who said, you know, we, there's this phase of us getting down on our knees to try and beg. There are vaccine lotteries all over the country that the White House has pointed to, chances to win million dollars if you get a shot. Largely, those have not worked. So the move now to a mandate suggests that the White House realizes we we need to use this kind of last tool in our arsenal. And will other employers follow? I think so. But to me, Martine, it's almost the reverse. The White House only did this after a number of employers had led the way. So when you've talked to health officials who have made this decision to have a vaccine mandate, what do they say about why it's important? So when I spoke to California's health secretary, Mark Daly, he said, we have reached a point, we're really concerned about the Delta variant. On June 15th, when we opened up the state officially, we had 900 people in the hospital with COVID. Today, we have 3,000, just under 3,000. Uh, and the uh, projections look like it will continue to get worse. And there's a legal precedent for this being upheld in, in the courts. The Supreme Court over a century ago upheld the power of Massachusetts to impose a state vaccination mandate. So we have, we have gotten to a moment where after six plus months, seven months of states rolling out these voluntary moves, they feel like they have no recourse other than to compel it. I also wonder if there is a concern here about the different messages we've heard over the last few months, both when it comes to vaccine mandates, but also when it comes to masks and the reversal of, well, everyone can not wear masks if they're vaccinated, but now we're being encouraged to wear masks again inside. And we've had a lot of conversations about the ways in which public health messaging over the course of the pandemic has eroded some of the public trust. And I wonder whether this back and forth is going to continue that erosion. It's a real shame. I think in some cases, this was beyond the control of public health authorities. So much in America is a culture war. So much was politicized, especially last year in the run-up to the election. So I, I have empathy for the officials who tried their best, and what they said was distorted in ways that was not intended. At the same time, we now are dealing with the CDC that has responded to the coronavirus pandemic over two very different administrations, but with very similar problems at times and making their messages heard. The masking guidance a few months ago came as a surprise to the White House. The White House had wanted very much to give CDC space. The Biden administration did not want to be perceived as meddling, which was a charge accurately put on the Trump administration. But I think the Biden administration may have gone too far in some respects in being hands-off. You don't want a big decision like many Americans can take off their masks now, not to be coordinated with the people running other parts of domestic policy. So at the time, my colleagues and I heard a lot of grumbling from folks who said, you know, we wish CDC had just talked through this with us and thought about the implications of announcing that masking guidance can be rolled back so dramatically. And the reason they were worried was for a moment just like this one, when the masking guidance might need to be put back on. Perhaps that could have been communicated better a few months ago. And then even in this new guidance, Martine, I think there have been real hitches. 
The CDC said that people who live in counties with substantial transmission or high transmission should resume wearing masks indoors if they're vaccinated. But to figure out if you're in one of those counties, you had to go to the CDC website, which has a different definition for whether your county has the right metric or not than, say, the local health department that many people live in. So I was getting plenty of feedback after we were reporting this from folks who said, well, wait, I went to my local county health department and they said we only had eight cases per day, whereas the CDC is tracking this number per week and where where do we fall? So it was another lost opportunity for perhaps simple, clear guidance as opposed to guidance that may be more academically sound, but all these caveats and nuances can throw people off. And I think one thing that is adding to the confusion for a lot of people right now, especially as they think about vaccine mandates and also going back to masking, is kids and schools and so many parents who were so hopeful that this was going to be the fall, that kids' school situation would get back to normal. And now there are questions whether the Delta variant will allow that to be possible. So how is all of this affecting that? The CDC was insistent that schools should reopen, that in-person schooling for kids is important, but that everyone in schools needs to wear masks. This is not a total surprise. We've seen public health experts call for this in recent days and weeks, but it, it shows the concern about all the lost education last year and a desire to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So the schooling piece is really big and it's incredibly difficult to message because a lot of people are now hearing these new dire messages and it's going to put seeds of doubt. Notably, the top lobbyist for teachers, Randy Weingarten, who leads the American Federation of Teachers, came out as these vaccination mandates were being unveiled across the country. And she said, quote, Vaccinations must be negotiated between employers and workers, not coerced. Her fear was that we are doing too much to try and force people to get to a point where we'll feel safe about having schools reopen. And I do think that that will be a real flashpoint in the coming weeks as schools try to reopen and teachers may feel like they're not ready to come back. Dan Diamond covers health policy for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. Last week, the opioid distributors, the three major companies that distribute most of our opioids in America. And Johnson & Johnson reached a settlement with lawyers for about 3,000 states, cities, counties that had sued them over the damage of the opioid crisis. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. The damage being, in addition to overdoses and overdose deaths, all the first responder costs, all the treatment costs, hospitalization costs that these municipalities said that they incurred. And how much is this settlement for? How much are these distributors, as well as Johnson & Johnson, going to be paying? It'll be $26 billion over 18 years. The distributors will be paying about 18 over 18 years, and Johnson & Johnson will be paying about $5 billion over nine years, and then there's a couple billion that goes to the lawyers themselves. 
Why is this settlement important? Well, it's by far the largest reckoning for the opioid era, uh, which roughly began in the late 90s. And it is important because it assigns some amount of penalty to four of the companies that the accusers say were largely responsible for the damage from the opioid epidemic. Um, They do not admit wrongdoing, so one can't say it assigns responsibility, but uh, the two sides agree that they are going to settle on this amount so that the future problems that opioids are causing now can be abated and the companies can get out from under the prospect of being in courtrooms for the rest of time. So this $26 billion over, I guess, most of the next couple of decades, how is that going to help? What is that money going to do? So the money will go to treatment. It will go to education. It will go to prevention. You could see different cities and towns spending it on having the opioid antidote naloxone uh, much more available. You could see it going to buprenorphine, which is the best treatment drug, or methadone. It will go into uh, education. You see lots of efforts now warning people not to take illegal drugs that they have no idea what's in them, specifically because fentanyl has become so widespread. It's in all kinds of drugs now. It will go to augment, theoretically, first responder forces. So I think that a lot of people would look at this amount of money coming out of this one settlement, $26 billion, and say, well, that's a lot of money. Um, And I'm sure the drug manufacturers and drug distributors would also say that is a lot of money. But I'm wondering, Lenny, do you think that this $26 billion is a lot of money? It's a tiny fraction of what is necessary. It's also uh, roughly a tenth of what the tobacco companies agreed to 20-some-odd years ago. Hmm. The tobacco companies have much bigger profit margins than the distributors and were were able to uh, put up some $200 billion over 20-some-odd years. It is a large sum of money when we look at it from the outside. I think what it really represents most of all is the best deal that each side felt it could make. Hmm. Now, there is more money coming, theoretically, uh, from the Sackler family. The Sackler family, the owners of Purdue Pharma. Right. So there are more billions coming. The major drugstore chains have not settled yet, and they are a deep pocket. But I think uh, when all is said and done, this is a large contribution, but not nearly what is going to be needed. So I'm curious, what has been the reaction to this settlement? Because so many people have called for folks from these drug distributors and manufacturers to go to jail. And it doesn't seem like that's happening, at least in this case. No, it's not happening in this case. It hasn't happened in the Purdue case. Many people have voiced the feeling that if executives knowingly continue to flood the market, with opioids, despite the amount of addiction and death that was occurring over a two-decade period and will continue to occur, that they should be held responsible for that by facing criminal charges. That's not the way this works. 
that's not going to happen. So far, Purdue has agreed as a company to some criminal charges and settled with the Department of Justice and paid a fine, but nobody who owns or runs Purdue is going to jail. No one who owns or runs Johnson & Johnson, Cardinal Health, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen is going to jail. Hmm. So right now, what is the current state of the opioid crisis and its scope? It's enormous and growing. There was a report out the week before the settlement that in 2020, there was an estimated 93,000 drug overdose deaths just in 2020. Hmm. And of those, uh, opioids were about two-thirds, as they always are. That's a 30% increase over 2019, which is a gigantic increase. Any way you look at it, 2020 was an awful year for drug overdoses just across the board. And to what extent is the pandemic playing a role in that growth? Well, in 2020, it played a very big role. People couldn't get out to get their medication, for example. People were stressed. They were dealing with the loss of jobs. They were dealing with the housing dislocation. They were dealing with the stress of the pandemic itself and the, and the fear uh, and, and the uh, grief that the disease caused. All of those things, if you are a user, tend to increase your use of these kinds of drugs. People were alone more. And so there were no other users around or family around to call 911 if there was an overdose or to use naloxone to reverse it. So COVID was a huge part of this. Um, It would be nice, and no one seems to be predicting this, but it would be nice if the numbers went back down once the pandemic goes away. But even if they do, they're not going back down to anything that is reasonable They're still unconscionably high. This is still a public health crisis and and another epidemic in our country. I'm also wondering if COVID distracted from the opioid crisis in the last year and a half, that because so much of our government and our healthcare system was focused on COVID, understandably, the scope of the crisis that we were all aware of before that in terms of opioids kind of went on the back burner. Without question. Without question. We took our eye off the ball, as a number of people said to us. It's understandable. When your healthcare system, your hospitals are stretched to the point they were by this virus and by this disease, it is to be expected that we would take our eye off the ball of other public health crises. This one, however, was already at epidemic levels before the virus, and now it has exceeded those by some 30%, and that's just using deaths as a measure. There's also uh, increased addictions um, and other fallout. So, yes, I mean, there's only so much a health system can do. It wasn't the greatest health system before COVID, and it was much more difficult during COVID. So how much is the federal government kind of turning back to this as a priority problem to deal with? And and how focused is the Biden administration on trying to get some of these opioid death numbers down? So I think the small ray of sunshine here is that Biden recognized this while he was running. He had a platform He had a plan, and he is 
to the extent that he can moving forward with that plan. He recently nominated a drug czar. He is moving forward with what is known as a harm reduction philosophy, which is a big change for the federal government. That means you take efforts to keep people alive, to reduce the harm of drugs, while you are also trying to improve the overall situation. So it's on his agenda. It's important to him. He made that clear during the campaign. And I think as COVID recedes, we will see HHS and other parts of the government turn their attention to the drug epidemic. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. The story was produced by Ted Muldoon. As the Biden administration tries to tackle the worsening opioid crisis, they are dealing with many of the same challenges faced by the Trump administration. Back in 2019, we did a story on Post reports about how federal resources failed to keep up with the spread of fentanyl. It is still a really relevant story today and definitely worth a listen. We'll put a link to that episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. And now, one more thing. For the last couple of weeks, I've spent some time down in Western Germany to report on the country's worst floods in living memory. That is Loveday Morris, the Berlin bureau chief for The Post. Earlier this month, devastating floods swept across parts of Western Europe. The country that was hit hardest was Germany. And while the waters have mostly receded and cleanup is underway, this disaster has left the country stunned. The devastation is incredible, really. I've covered a lot of conflict in my time with The Post, and the level of destruction there is really comparable to a conflict zone. There are areas where the infrastructure is just completely wiped out. Sewage systems, water networks, electricity networks, railways, bridges, houses. So I just want to tell you guys from perspective, there was a house here. Yeah, um, this yeah. house broke away in front of our eyes and yeah. we saw the people drown yeah. uh, in, front of our, in front of our eyes. So while I was there, I headed to the village of Altena. Some of the aerial shots around this area had shown really f- high flood levels and completely submerged houses. And that's what happened on Sailbarn Street the night of July 14th. Okay. So I am from Chicago, Yeah. from north of Chicago, a town called... So Teresa Buchmann lives right at the upper end of Zailbahn Street, which is right on the river. And that day, everyone in Altenar had been preparing for floods. It's an area that has had flooding before, and people were expecting floods of a few meters. Right, so we weren't worried. Yeah. What we were worried about was our possessions in the yard, so we moved everything to the front over there where it was higher. Yeah. Well, that was the biggest joke of our lives because that was gone in 30 seconds. Yeah, literally 30 seconds. Everything was underwater. But the river burst its banks and then the floodwaters began to rise quite rapidly that evening. 
the garden of their home was soon a river, and then there was a river out front. And then the same thing was happening to families all up and down this street. Their houses were just being inundated and they were trapped. And so Teresa and her family had to move from floor to floor to get out of the floodwaters. So as soon as that happened, the water started coming up to our second floor in our house. And my daughter was laying on the couch and I told my husband, get my daughter, we're going up to the third level. And I think the second level filled up in probably five minutes or less. Then they just watched as their neighbor's whole house was swept away down that street. And at midnight, when we realized no one was coming, we basically said, okay, this is it, we're gonna die. We called our parents, both of us, we still had phone reception, mm. so we called our, both of us called our parents and said goodbye. Oh my gosh. Um, and so, so you're kind of cleaning out, getting your stuff together and... And that's it. I, I can't live here knowing that that house washed away in front of my eyes and people that I love, like my family, mm. Nearly 200 people in Germany and Belgium have died. Other people are still missing. And authorities are pointing to climate change as a cause of this extreme weather. Ein Hochwasser ist das, das Beispiel für den Klimawandel. Aber wenn wir uns die Schadensereignisse der letzten Jahre anschauen, dann. This all comes in the lead up to elections in Germany where climate issues were already the number one issue for German voters. Chancellor Angela Merkel has vowed to get these areas back on their feet, but the level of destruction is huge. And now the question is, where do we go from here? When it comes to the Bookmans, they don't plan to stay, regardless of whether their house is condemned or not. Can't sleep. I, every, well, every yeah. time I close my eyes, I'm in that attic, mm. and I just see a pool of water, mm. just brown. It was just brown, you know, dirty brown water everywhere. Mm, mm. And all I could see was the top of this house and the top of that house. They've lost their entire livelihoods and their home, just trying to start again, really. Loveday Morris is the Berlin bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Lena Muhammad. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.